You're tuned to 3CR, 855 AM, 3CR Digital and streaming on 3cr.org.au. Up next, we bring you the final conversation from the Forum for Dwelling Justice, held at the Capitol Theatre here in Nam, Melbourne in August. Organised by RMIT's Centre for Urban Research, the forum was supported by the International Journal of Housing Policy, the Renters and Housing Union and 3CR. Over recent weeks, we've heard discussions on the relationship between colonial dispossession, housing injustice, incarceration, racial violence and poverty, and how we all have a role to play in building solidarity among movements. Today, we hear from those documenting the movement about the importance of peer-led projects. Featuring Jasmine Barzani, who documented the Bendigo Street campaign in 2016, which saw the occupation of 15 government-owned houses compulsorily acquired for the defunct East-West Link Highway project. And Lucy McMahon with Things Will Be Different, documenting how tenants in the north of Melbourne were forced to relocate as the Walker Street public housing estate was privately redeveloped. Joining Jasmine and Lucy on the panel, Kelly Whitworth and Spike Chapalone, who recently produced Homeless in Hotels series, featuring the voices of Melbourne's homeless community, who went from life on the streets to life in hotels during the city's COVID-19 curfew and rolling lockdowns. The conversation was facilitated by Irene Salidas-Noyce from the Renters and Housing Union and began with Bendigo Street filmmaker Jasmine Barzani. Hi, everyone. I want to start off by, like everyone has done today, acknowledging that we're on stolen, unceded Wurundjeri land and that this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. My name's Jasmine. I'm the filmmaker. This film's about a lot of things. One of the things it's about is squatting in the contemporary sense of squatting. But other than that, I don't want to spoil too much of what this film is about. I just want to say thank you for coming here. It's really nice to see so many people who are in the film here today. It's super emotional. I really want to thank everyone who spoke earlier. It's been such an awesome conference and the organizers as well. Thank you so much. I also wanted to just take a minute of silence before the film starts to remember Auntie Tanya Day, who was part of the Bendigo Street campaign in 2016. And I want to thank the Day family for their support and for allowing us to dedicate this film to her. If everyone's ready, we'll start the one minute of silence and then after that, the film will play. Thank you. The East-West Toll Road was a proposal that has been put forward by many governments over many years. And in 2014, the Liberals wanted to build it and Labor said that if they got into government, they would also honour the contracts and build it. I'm not in the business of ripping up contracts. So the East-West Link was a proposal to basically 
turn the inner city into a rat's nest of on and off ramps by building a huge new freeway entrance and exit and tunnel underneath the city that would come out at certain points to go from one side over on the east to, to another side over on the west. Part of the way that they were going to do that was by getting rid of people's houses, right? They were just going to demolish them, going to buy them and then demolish them all for the sake of the road. Building more roads to cure congestion is like loosening your belt to cure obesity, Mr Deputy Speaker. All it will do is extend the traffic jams further and further. Part of that project required the compulsory acquisition of a bunch of people's houses. And a lot of them on this street called Bendigo Street. This quiet street in Collingwood is home to dozens of people. But for Collingwood resident Keith Fitzgerald, it may not be home for long. Oh, well, we're devastated. I may not be here for 70 years. On Bendigo Street, they wanted to compulsorily acquire people's homes so that they could put a freeway on ramp onto the existing freeway. Here in Melbourne, there's a massive history, a very long history of local community resistance to freeways and freeways that have been proposed to be built in Melbourne have been defeated by local communities getting together and protesting. And the East-West Link was just the latest one of these. I think for a lot of people, the East-West Link project represented a government pursuing a freeway agenda with transport rather than a public transport agenda with more trains and trams and stuff because about climate change. Basically every reason under the sun people oppose this thing, including people who were going to lose their houses to the project, including people on Bendigo Street who were involved in the campaign opposing the road. So eventually people started taking direct action. We will be, we will be cemented to Bendigo Street. We'll be living in Bendigo Street 24-7 for as long as it takes until we force these people to give up on the east-west tunnel. We haven't even started yet. The standoff between demonstrators and police has continued on the site of a controversial road project in Melbourne. Protesters have been trying to blockade a test drilling site for the east-west link construction. Opponents say they'll continue their protests as preliminary drilling continues on the multi-billion dollar project. This November's state election is shaping as a referendum on the east-west toll road. If we win the election, then we will not proceed with this project. So when, just weeks before the election, we got news that Labor announced they'd backflipped and changed their position, that was just the best moment. We knew that we'd won the campaign. Keith Fitzgerald, whose Collingwood home was among 300 in the demolition zone, claimed victory. How sweet it is. Victory has come home to roost. It's taken a lot of blood, sweat and tears, literally blood, sweat and tears, um, to get this far. And so today, um, we're really excited that we're able to celebrate. The people of Victoria have today overwhelmingly endorsed a positive and optimistic plan for our state. As part of the East-West Toll Road project, the Liberals bought up a whole bunch of homes that would have been in the way of the road. So they compulsorily acquired people's homes. When Labor got into government and weren't going to proceed with the road, which was a great win, 
Well, there was this question of what to do with these homes. We called for them to be used for public housing so that the most vulnerable in our society could have a place to live. Unfortunately, the government didn't do that. So I had been squatting around that time, not having heaps of luck at that time, kind of bouncing around. And it's pretty empowering to jump into an abandoned house and like reside there for as long as, as long as you can get away with. But there was no electricity or gas and a bulldozer came came along one day to demolish the house like while we were in it. So we had to scramble to get our stuff out. I needed accommodation you know, to house myself and friends, but definitely was grossed out by the amount of like empty houses I was aware, you know, that there are around Melbourne. There's so many empty houses that are just kind of left to rot. So I went online and came across an article which mentioned the street Bendigo Street in Collingwood and dubbed it like a ghost street or ghost neighbourhood. So I jumped on my bike and went down to check it out. And I came across, first of all, number two, Bendigo Street, which I thought, hang on a minute, this doesn't exactly look like it's empty. It didn't have the normal signs of an empty house that we tend to look for when looking for a squat. There was no mail built up in the box. There was no, like, overgrown shrubs or overgrown lawns or anything like that. So I went up and had a look in the window, and sure enough, it was, it was definitely empty. There was no furniture inside. So I walked my bike along to the next house, which I could tell as well just from looking in the window was definitely empty and it was a bit exciting because friends and I who I was squatting with we, we really needed a place at the time and these houses looked really nice. Next number six it was really obviously lived in there was a car in the driveway anti-east west link project sign there on the fence so I could tell that one was clearly lived in. The next house as well was was definitely empty so I was getting the sense at this point that the majority of the houses along the east side seemed to be empty and abandoned. We were able to tell that 16 and 18 looked the easiest to get into. So other people in the group uh, managed to get into number 18 and change the locks as well to the doors and uh, we've begun living there. And after two or three days, the maintenance man came along and um, noticed that we were living there. It came to the attention of the government or the police that they were there and they were immediately thrown out onto the street with no you know, recourse to any um, emergency accommodation or any support or anything like that. In 2016, I was part of the Homeless Persons Union. One of our members alerted us to the fact that these houses were empty still after two years in a, in a homelessness and humanitarian crisis in Australia. And for us, it's just a no-brainer. Like, all these empty houses, they're government-owned, they could easily be made into public housing. Because of my work at 3CR Community Radio, I got the women to come into the radio station and we recorded a, a conversation about what happened. And I just said, oh, wouldn't it be great if we just like occupied one of these houses and just to alert the public to the fact that there were scores of them sitting empty, you know, and this was outrageous to us. A bunch of different people started talking about doing some sort of campaign around them, you know, rather than just like squatting them, let's make this a more public thing and bring in 
um, a lot more attention to the realities of what the state government's doing and the housing crisis and homelessness in general. So it was about Easter in 2016 when this all started. So this was a big stunt that we were going to try and pull off. So we decided that we would meet at 6am at Victoria Park train station. It was in the dark. We didn't know how many people were going to turn up and it ended up being about 30 to 40 people all rocked up there in the dark on this morning. And then we all went like in little groups of three or four to the house at, at like five minute intervals. We occupied um, 16 Bendigo Street, um, which was a great two story house sitting there empty. And there was like heaps of us inside that building ready to get arrested. Like we weren't just going to walk away from this thing. If they want us out, then they're going to have to drag us out. Balkanly police may, police may take steps to remove you from this property. These steps may include the lawful application of reasonable force. They read out this, you know, letter saying that you're now trespassing on private property. By this time, a second house on the street had been gotten into and we were taking kind of celebratory photos from the balcony. That first evening, we decided we'd go pop in an, into another house down the end of the street, very lovely house. That was number two, Bendigo Street. We grabbed some couches from hard rubbish from around the street and set them up in the street and had pancake breakfast and were all milling about on the couches and people were rocking up and making food and sharing it with everyone. It was a really beautiful, electric and powerful um, atmosphere. It was great. People that were homeless um, came and stayed there initially. People would come and stay for a night or two. We had all these, you know, lists and posters and everything up around the walls and rosters and people's bloody telephone numbers and everything and facts about homelessness. And we kept the house really schmick. It was really nice and clean. And as day two and day three rolled along, the police had been around to the local neighbourhood and distributed letters into the neighbours' letterboxes saying, there's currently a protest underway at 2 Bendigo Street. We're monitoring the situation. But then we really realised, holy tits, you know, like they're not going to shut us down and um, they're taking this really seriously. And that's when we realised there's something really big going on here, like we have a lot of power those first few days, that's when we started to get organised and start to talk about, okay, well, now we're here, what are we going to do with this situation? And so we developed some demands. The occupiers have made the following demands and refused to leave until they are met. Uh, number one, immediate release of all information relating to the current ownership of all properties acquired for the East West Link, with full transparency about all acquired land and no more dishonesty. Number two, the six unused houses on Bendigo Street to be made into genuine public housing and allocated to some of the 35,000 people on the public housing waiting list. Occupation will continue until it is handed over. For the first maybe like three months, it was like my whole life. I deferred my uni course, I quit my job pretty much, and I just was doing that full time. Yeah. Like, why? <laughs> <laughs> I think I think because of that, like that same on that first night, having that feeling of like, wait, something's actually happening here, and that was that was exciting to me. And also, it just like seemed, it, it seemed like a problem that I felt like 
was really big and hard to pin down, and here was this opportunity to actually do something. amazing to be here today and see so many incredible speakers. I'd like to first start us off by acknowledging that we're on unceded and stolen land and pay respects to Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boon peoples of the Kulin Nation. It's been amazing to hear from all of the speakers today and massive round again for that incredible film, Mendigo Street. Donate. <laughs> yeah, please donate. And speaking of donate, I also just wanted to flag that pay the rent. And as the film starts off with, important to note that, like all of the speakers have mentioned, paying the rent is, is one of those first steps that we can take to support in the struggle for decolonisation. So my name is Arini. I'm the secretary of the Renters and Housing Union, Rahu. Woo! Up the ra! <laughs> We're a pretty new organisation that formed as a response to the COVID-19 pandemic through the rent strike movement in 2020. And we're the largest renters union in the country um, and we're growing every day. So join if you're a renter or if you're in solidarity with, with that um, struggle. I'm here joined by some incredible 
creative talents and activists and people and comrades um, in the struggle. Um, Jasmine Barzani, the director and producer and documentarian of Bendigo Street. <laughs> and Kelly Whitworth, who's been just an absolute legend, involved with 3CR, with many, many programs, including the recent Homelessness in Hotels program that's on 3CR at the moment, and Spike Chapelone. Um, obviously, wow. both of you were involved in Bendigo Street as well. We'll be talking more about the program that they're running at the moment. Once, my, once Spike's got his mic back on. <laughs> and lastly, Lucy McMahon, who, I mean, I obviously want to hear everyone else introduce themselves as well, but um, is the maker of Things Will Be Different, which we'll see shortly, an incredible film about, I'll let you explain what it's about, but amazing to have you here. I thought we could start off by maybe just speaking more about the, the project that you've made and your connection to it. Okay. Who would like to go first? Okay, let's start with Jazz. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, uh, well, so the project. So I feel like you just all kind of saw a little bit of what the film is about. So instead of telling you what the film is about, I feel like telling you what's in store for the rest of the feature length film, which we'll hopefully be able to make. If you all get out your phones right now, scan my QR code and chip in to the fundraiser. So basically the plan for the rest of the film, if we are able to secure 20K in funding, is to, after what you just saw, incorporate an interview with Uncle Larry Walsh that we did in 2021, where he'll give the big plot twist of everything that you just saw, you know, the big revelation which spoiler alert for everybody is that we're on Aboriginal land and <laughs> yeah. And, you know, like Uncle Larry said, unfortunately you couldn't be here today. Uh, as he said, you know, at the last launch that we did at the Institute of Postcolonial Studies, you know, the reason that we also for the film started incorporating this phrase dwelling justice was because we wanted to use a phrase that reached beyond just housing, a phrase that encapsulated, you know, like Uncle Larry said, the First Nations people's rightful claim to their inheritance, which includes the land, includes the Birurung, includes their country, includes a dwelling place, and it includes their stories as well. So the Bendigo Street campaign was in a large part driven by Wurundjeri people and First Nations people who are experiencing homelessness in their own land. And that's what the plan is for the rest of the film. So if you want to see that made, at the moment there isn't any film out there, documentary film, that links decolonial movement and thinking to housing and homelessness and First Nations struggle. So if you want to see that documentary film made, it's not going to happen without you all. Scan the QR code, please. Right now. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Awesome. Kelly and Spike, did you want to speak to the work that you're doing now and, and your connection to the project? Yeah, g'day everybody. Thanks for being here. Um, it's good to be here and thank you to David and Libby for inviting us to speak. We're really honoured yeah, so we've just um, released a three-part 
radio series called Homeless in Hotels. And that documents the lives of some of the people that were put into emergency hotel accommodation during the pandemic. And also some of the support workers as well who worked around their clients and uh, we're peers ourselves. Um, we've both had lived experience of homelessness. Uh, we've both experienced the ups and downs of um, AOD, that's alcohol and other drug use and mental health issues throughout our lives. So the radio series not only uh, gives a platform for homeless peers to share their experience, but also homeless peers who have AOD or who are happy to talk about um, having AOD or substance, being substance users or yeah, struggling with mental health. And so it's really important that they were uh, given a voice because, you know, of like stigma and uh, prohibition and the war on drugs in this country. We're really pleased that we were able to offer a space for them to talk about their stuff without any judgment, shame, censorship and um, things like that. So yeah, it broadcast recently on 3CR Radical Radio and yeah, now it's on its own website and um, we're really stoked. <coughs> yeah. What's the website, Kelly? Say the website. Uh, homelessinhotels.net. So I think what's really important is well the similar um, themes that are in Jasmine's movie, how the state government makes laws, was going to build a road that was going to assist, you know, the transport industry. And so uh, the authorities or the establishment makes laws to suit a minority of people. Um, and that, that same thing happens in, um, I guess to a different, during the pandemic, people, I suppose vulnerable communities, we weren't, I guess the, the, the truth was that we weren't all in this together. What we, what people experienced from their lounge rooms, other people had, you know, had to deal with all their services, you know, completely melted away. All their supports um, were gone uh, overnight and they were basically forced well, not dragged into crisis accom, but encouraged into crisis accommodation where they had no choice over where they were going, who they were going to be living with, and, and they didn't know how long they were going to be there and what how long that, yeah, and what the outcome was going to be. And so they lost total control over their lives. And I think it was really important that the the podcast gives voice to those experiences and and people who are having a lived experience of homelessness or addiction or have mental health issues rarely get the opportunity to, I was going to swear then, but get, get to, you know, share their stuff with the community. And, and I think, especially in, well, the, the, a lot of the media uh, coverage uh, during the pandemic, we heard, and I don't want to cast dispersions on, you know, the general public, we heard from, you know, uh, tradespeople, we heard from, you know, teachers, you know, all sorts of different, but we never heard from people who had, you know, were homeless or were subject to the, you know, lockdowns um, in, in in the towers or I know the tiny homes in Footscray that were locked down based on an indeterminate uh, positive COVID test, an indeterminate test. That's how quickly they come, the, the state government comes down on vulnerable communities. And I think it's important for us to keep that in mind 
when we're thinking about issues like housing, because, you know, there's, yeah, I'll look, I'll, I'll, I'll shut up now, but I think, yeah, the importance of people who are having a lived experience to be involved in sharing their stories and, and the, the stories of people from all different sorts of backgrounds is incredibly important and powerful because it doesn't, it's, it's rarely, it rarely happens. Yeah, it's a really powerful way of putting so many of the struggles that folks faced over the last couple of years. And I think it points so clearly as well to the importance of lived experience as part of documenting and, and, and struggling together in that. And really keen, Lucy, to hear more about summary of, um, of the film that you've made and, and your connection to it. Yeah, sure. Um, I am mic'd up now, I can hear my voice. Um, so yeah, I am the director and one of the producers alongside Celeste Clario, who's sitting up the very back there. We both made this film, it's called Things Will Be Different, it's going to play after this panel. It's a really kind of intimate portrait of two people who were living at the Walker Street public housing estate when it was scheduled for demolition as part of the state government's um, public housing renewal program, which was a program that aimed to renew a whole lot of um, walk-ups across Victoria. And so, yeah, Celeste and I arrived um, sort of uh, towards the end of the process where the estate was like mostly emptied out. And yeah, we, we documented just a very sort of small picture of the way that this government policy is was impacting the lives of two families who were living at Walker Street. I, yeah, I grew up in public housing. And so when I heard about this policy, I joined the Save Public Housing Collective where I met Libby and David. And I also met Will, who's one of the main people in the documentary. And I met Celeste. And yeah, I guess when Celeste and I first met, we didn't really have a plan or necessarily set out to make a documentary, but we felt as though this was like an important moment to be, to be documenting this moment where we felt like government was sort of abandoning public housing and abandoning the people who rely on public housing and so that's kind of how who I am how I came to the project but yeah it's going to play after this so everyone will get a much better sense of what the film is. I'm really excited to get to see it as well because I think it'll be a really important and powerful way of detaching it to the personal as well which kind of is my attempt at a segue into <laughs> people's personal connection to insecurity, insecurity of housing, insecurity of place and dwelling and and how the structure we are living in, in the colony with capitalism being the driving force of that insecurity as well. Like you don't have to say anything that makes you uncomfortable, but personal being political, what's your connection or your experience with housing insecurity? I know who wants to answer this. Slack. <laughs> oh. <laughs> that shouldn't put me on the spot. Like my my personal. You want him to go first? Well, okay. Yeah. So, my personal experience as an look, I I went to a talk once where an Irish housing academic came over to a homelessness conference, and he said he said, and I, this has stayed with me. This was maybe fifteen years ago he said that homelessness was something that starts is a roll a ball of wool that starts unrolling the day you were born and that 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 really hit home for me. Um, so it, like 
our family wasn't dirt poor, but so you know, you know working families, um, and there was addiction in my family, um, mental health issues, and I think drugs as a young person. So you know, drugs became became like it consumed my life, and I think um, as a teenager, I got lost in in that whole thing, and and home didn't feel my parents home didn't feel safe and so i think my relationship to, to housing it's, it's a really complicated one and i think that stayed with with me throughout and for a long time you go from you know house to house or you're squatting or you're sleeping you know at a train station or wherever you, you can find some peace i guess and where you feel safe and and if it wasn't for public housing, I don't know where I'd be. Like uh, the and I've been housed maybe I think 18 years now, mm. and the five years before that was in a rooming house. So that that's another issue. You know, the rooming house sort of um, industry or whatever whatever you want to call it, it destroy. It, it's you know it's completely. I mean, not that regulations everything, but they need you know like these places. It's like that's what it's colonialism, and that's that the violence of you know, dispossession. That, that's the sort of violence that's impacted on vulnerable communities when they're forced to pay, you know, 50% um, of their income to live in, in a house and share a toilet with, you know, 15 in a rooming house. The rooming house I lived in, there was 30 other people. There was two toilets, two showers, and I paid 50% of my income to live there. And so housing insecurity, I think I, I, it's safe to say is a part of the majority of vulnerable members of the community's lives—it's not—it's not exceptional. Mm. So, if people got the opportunity to say this, you know, tell their story, you would hear that there's a lot of people who've experienced that sort of insecurity. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think I just want to acknowledge like what Spike just did there, which is you know, it requires a lot of bravery and it requires a lot of courage, and I think that a lot of people view talking about lived experience in all sorts of different ways, but he just opened himself up completely to all sorts of stigma, all sorts of, you know, being boxed into something that then he has to perform all sorts of like interrogations about his authenticity, you know, and all of this stuff happens when you come out and talk about your lived experience. And I think it's really, really hard to do. And it's important for a lot of different reasons and in a lot of different ways. But I think also, you know, there's been a lot of talk today about um, you know, centering, 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 you know, who are we centering? We need to center people. Like, I totally agree with that and stuff, but I think there's a lot of complexity. And I think we also need to, like, acknowledge that the higher the stakes are for you, you know, whether it's because you're an asylum seeker, whether it's because you're criminalized, the higher the stakes are, the harder it is to actually put your neck out and say, yeah, I've experienced X, Y, Z, you know what I mean? Because you literally have like the full force of the colonial nation state coming at you with fucking guns, you know? Um, so like the harder it is, the more that's at stake, the more difficult it is to come out and talk about your experience. And I think in our organizing and in our political work, we need to think of ways of centering people and their experience that is creative and doesn't require people with really 
hectic lived experience to come out and like stand up in front of a big crowd of people, a lot of whom don't really understand or can't relate to. And, you know, recently I started going to Homes Not Prisons meetings. Shout out to Homes Not Prisons. <laughs> um, and I think they have a really cool model, you know, they're like, okay, so you have the lived experience steering committee, which are the people who make the decisions, right? And, you know, when we're on our ones or just like with us, we can talk about our lived experience to each other, to people who get it, to people that we feel safe with, you know? And then after that, we go and tell our decisions to people who don't have a lived experience and they come and they help us and they stand in solidarity as allies. So I think that's like one example of a really creative method that we're centering people who can't actually come out and be like, these are my charges, this is this, this is that. So that's all I want to say about that. Thanks, My experience of homelessness is through um, partners that have been violent and um, substance use issues. That's made my housing really precarious at times. The most recent time um, has been recently through COVID and um, yeah, that was pretty bad. And then it happened earlier when I was about 20 with a guy and um, yeah, we had to move around a lot because he was an alcoholic and um, he'd have major blackouts and get violent and do something or other in the pub or create some scene we had to leave the town. So you know, we were moving around caravan parks, rooming houses, um, things like that. Yeah, is that a structural issue? I mean, you're asking the question. I'm not sure who you are asking it to, but I, I think. Anybody here? Does anybody want it? I think it's such a big part of the of family violence and particularly patriarchy. Well, yeah, patriarchy. Um, how I started getting involved in housing struggle and in the right to a home and making sure that that was a safe and centered place and that there was some stability of it. I didn't really realize just how connected that was to having experienced violence myself or like being one of the many, many, many women who do regularly. Um, and I think all of what you've brought demonstrates the, the, the necessity of homes being part of a bigger picture of our needs, you know, including being safe from violence and including the supports and the destigma needed with AOD, um, because without without that extra support there, then it doesn't work without each other. Yeah, I guess because we live in a um, in a capitalist society where housing's all on, you know, it's all free market stuff. You don't, you're not, you know, you don't. You don't grow up in this country knowing about um, like housing is not embedded into like the way that we live and the safety net that we all should have, you know, access to healthcare whenever we need it, access to free and high quality education, access to safe and secure housing. Um, you know, that's not embedded. No, when I became homeless, it wasn't like I could just easily make a phone call to, I don't know, some local authority, some housing now like publicly owned like housing association and be able to easily get into safe housing. My options would have been really limited. It would have been the street or friends couches or in a rooming house, you know, because I couldn't afford 
to just you know rent a place by myself. So what are you saying? You couldn't afford a thousand dollars a month? <laughs> no, you're <Irene, I> <laughs> crazy, crazy. Yeah. No, um, yeah, and that's a big problem. Why so many people are homeless as well because they just can't afford um, the rents. You know, we've got like a million empty homes in Australia, like a million empty properties. Three I think million. Three million in the country. I think there needs to be like a really big squatting movement going on. <laughs> Absolutely, I'm not joking. <laughs> the way that I see it now, like I have no faith in government. I think they work for themselves. They work for their mates. They don't give a shit about us. So it's up to us to force their hand and to get those houses into the housing market if we're still going to have you know like the capitalist housing market but yeah something needs to be done to get those people concerned about their homes and they need to get moved into the market so rents will come down and there's more housing availability for everyone what is it you cannot people are always complaining like it's been really hard to find a rental property in melbourne it's like 0.3 percent availability or something insane like that so if I've got any message to give today, it's yeah, like people think about starting a squatting movement or do something among your networks. I think that's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there's currently, I think, the last figure on the vacancy rate, which is a really falsified thing, is 1.6 in July. And it's been the lowest it's been for a long time. Um, so every time, every time a journalist will call and ask, oh, how are people like it's the lowest vacancy rate and the highest rents right how are people finding places because there's so few available and it's completely falsified like i mean prosper australia who put out the speculative vacancy reports every year have tracked based on the water usage in victoria and in 2019 there was over 69,000 empty properties and that means that they were using less than i think it's basically equivalent to a leak, a leaking tap, you know, 69,000 plus that year alone. And, and if you actually measure that as part of the vacancy rate, all of a sudden you realise that the whole thing is built on a false scarcity. Yeah. And, you know, with those 69,000 plus properties, you'd be able to house, sorry, be able to home or house more than 180,000 people. Yeah. And, and so when people who are having a lived experience of, of homelessness, they're walking past real estate agents and they see all these houses and they, you know, they see advertising, you know, and, and so, so there's all these houses, I'm homeless. People start to blame themselves. It's like a real blame the victim culture in, in Australia. And so it's your individual, um, your, uh, inadequacy that's why you're not housed not because there's a crazy free market sort of situation where people are paying 80 percent of whatever 50 percent of their income in rent it's your fault it's your fault for not being able to make it and and i think it, it, it there's a real um disconnect between what actually happens in the real world and what people experience mm -hmm. and, and and it doesn't it really doesn't help it makes people ill that disconnection between you know, the, the reality of, of the brutality of capitalism and people's experience and, and what they hear on the news and what they hear on 
what they, you know, on TV and in the newspapers, and and really it creates sort of unwellness. Mm. It makes people really unwell. And I think this stigma that you're talking about that sort of gets imposed on people who aren't able to make it, like because we we are living in a world where there's a neoliberal myth that you should be able to work and then get into the property market and set yourself up, and anyone who hasn't been able to do that has failed. I think that attitude is also what underpins the state government's ability to get away with the public housing renewal program and the big housing build and these policies that just allow them to sell off these huge areas of land, crown land, a lot of the land, um, and that nobody really blinks an eye because I think outside of spaces like this, there is a really pervasive mentality that you should, as an individual, be able to take care of yourself and the state doesn't want to do that anymore. So yeah, I think it's sort of connected. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Like we've been sold this like sick dream like forever, it's, it's it's like a sick nightmare. It's not even real. All the things we're supposed to aspire to, and what's possible in life, it's just it's a con job. It's like a total con job. All all built on on a crime scene, as Uncle Robbie thought would say. And that's part yeah. of the yeah the violence, not just physical violence, but emotional violence that people experience, that vulnerable communities experience when they've been sort of bullied uh, to to accept that yeah intimidating to like you're no good because you, you can't make it in yeah. but i do think that it's important to to speak of hope because there is i think hope in collectivity <laughs> Fuck hope. <laughs> well no. i mean you know however no, you no. want to approach it your <laughs> film has given i think so many people hope it gives me inspiration and hope because it demonstrates the power and the strength that we have in numbers and our collectivity. For every one landlord, there's five renters, right? And not just renters, but people who don't own homes or more than one, you know, and the more we can build collectivity, the better we're placed to actually to change that that structure that's not serving any of us. Can I just quickly I wanted say, to ask you actually, yeah, but please, please, please go. Yeah, please go ahead. What were you going to ask? I was going to ask you what one of the comrades at the end of that film said, but I also want you to speak as much as you want. So, yeah. yeah, I think I just wanted to say on the fuck hope thing, just because I think the there's a point to that, um, which, you know, I think Libby said earlier and Chelsea Ortega had said in her recent book, and I have conflicting feelings and I go back and forth between, you know, having hope and then being like, fuck hope. But I think, <laughs> but I think what Chelsea was saying in her book and the point or what I understood from it is like the reason that we're saying fuck hope is because we know that this system is fundamentally not changeable because it, it was, it is designed and produced from its inception, you know, private property from its inception existed and was brought into this land to steal Aboriginal people's land and to convert land into this individualized possession of settler, white settlers, right? And that's what's underpinning all of this. So this idea of like, oh, neoliberalism or reform or why aren't things changing? What can we do? Why, like, how can we change the system? It's like the system's not going to change until we decolonize and the system's not going to change until we reckon with the fact that all of our experiences of housing deprivation and housing insecurity and homelessness 
is because of colonialism, right? And it continues because of colonialism and because of the ongoing settlement. Like, quick fun fact that I really wanted to share with everyone that I feel like people probably don't know, which as well like ties in a lot of what people have been saying throughout the day with penal abolition is incarceration, housing, all these things, you know, patriarchy, white supremacy. They're things that intersect with colonialism to continue the status quo and to continue pushing people away from the center towards death, closer to death, right? Because housing precarity does bring you closer to death. And one of the things that does that is, you know, the criminal legal system, which, you know, when colonizers first came on this land, they were squatters, right? They were like this, they were called the squatocracy, literally, because it became such a phenomena that people like white Europeans were just invading, coming, taking land that wasn't theirs and squatting on it. And it was fine. Like they were actually facilitated to do that. And eventually legislation was developed through liberalism, through the carceral state, through police, through, um, you know, borders and all of that to facilitate the ability of these European invaders to legally squat using, you know, European legislation, not the customary law that Uncle Robbie was talking about. And now squatting suddenly illegal again, right? Because the people who are doing it are the poor, the people who are doing it are the people who the system is trying to bring closer to death so that the system can maintain its power and the, like you said, Spike, you know, the minority of people who are in power can continue to privilege from their positions of power. Well said. Now, can I ask you what? <laughs> what? We need not say his name. <laughs> of course, um, our friend and comrade yeah. in that film. I just want to hear exactly what it was. He said, I think we would be better and stronger standing up because everyone was sitting down in front of the police on Bendigo Street when things were kicking off towards the end there. That's what he said. Mm. I think it's just a really powerful <laughs> statement to make because I remember when we'd spoken about it when you were still working on the film and filming, that was just such a powerful way of putting it. Like, we're not gonna take it sitting down. And, and I think to also mention Robbie again, in saying before, like, between all of us, you know, who are clearly interested and invested in seeing a different structure happen, Robbie was saying like, step up. And it's amazing to see that People are really keen to do that. What Robbie's, Robbie's power, I think Robbie's power is really through his storytelling and his ability to communicate a message to people from regardless of their background. And that's incredibly powerful. And I think Jasmine does it with with her movie. I think we did it with, with Homeless in Hotels. We haven't seen, and I think, sorry, I, I've forgotten. You know, the film, Things Will Be Different. Things Will Be Different. I think that's really important that we start to tell our stories and that because that's how we learn that's how we learn stuff from each other is through stories and if you don't get the opportunity or the platform to to speak your mind in a safe place it never happens so these opportunities these platforms are incredibly important for people to be able to get up and say this is how it was for me this is how it feels this is how it feels when i don't feel like i'm listened to this is how it feels when when you judge me this is how it feels when you, when you don't listen, um, where I feel like I'm not being listened to. And that's what makes these 
a project so powerful. And it's a counter narrative. It's an opportunity to say, well, yes, this, this is happening and you're trying to take away hope and reduce hope. But maybe maybe there's an opportunity to build to build on what you what we're doing here. Because the other thing is, um, this isn't just the state government, by the way, it's not just the Crown. It's, it's private capital. It's, it's actually, unfortunately, there's some not-for-profits that are also incredibly complicit in maintaining the status quo. As Jazz was, was saying, it's set up. It's, it's a shape-shifter. It keeps changing because it wants to survive. But, you know, I still believe that there's a chance for a counter-narrative that, yeah, to start something. Yeah. So um, I did not bring a watch or anything up with me, so <laughs> I'm getting a bit of a nod now. Um, I could sit here all night and just have chats and yarns about all of the amazing work and campaigns and significant events that you've all been part of and of documenting so importantly. I guess, how can people get involved in your projects? Quick round, We've got the QR code. What's the website's name, Jazz? <laughs> BendigoST.com. Yeah. And oh, we're not doing any fundraising, but I'll just encourage people to really start getting on to the idea of peer voices because that's all we have, actually. You know, like the system's fucked. Don't worry <laughs> about the system. Like, it's about us, you know. And so use whatever resources you have, get whatever resources you know you can to articulate your voice and those of your peers who are, you know, struggling for what justice, whatever you want to call it in this country or for a good life, you know, like, and um, through whatever kind of medium, you know, whether that be radio, whether that be video, writing, whatever kind of art, whichever way you want to do it. That's what I would say. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Join the renters and housing union. Join, join, you know, um, support, support campaigns that that sit well with your sense of your sense of justice. And you know, go to your as Kelly was saying, go to your local library, borrow cameras, just get out there and 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 community. If that's the thing, when we experience things individually, it's a lot more difficult. But when collectively there's strength, there's support and there's power. And I think that's that's one of the strengths of, of capitalism is that is strengths in that it's, it feels overwhelming because you experience it by yourself. And I think in a group sort of situation and as a collective, there's strength in the collective. And I, yeah, that's I truly believe. Yeah. Like just said that so well, but yeah, just get connected to other people and work out what we're going to do about the situation that we're in. Um, yeah, in terms of our film, there's a link to it on the event page. We are taking donations. Also, if anyone knows a social worker or anyone who does dance lessons or tennis lessons that people from the film's families can get involved with, you can send us an email or like chat to me after the conference. There's links all over the forum to the Documentary Australia Foundation page where people can make donations if they want to. So yeah. Awesome. And that that's the event page for, for today. Tonight. Yeah, yes, okay. yeah, amazing, awesome. Yeah. All right, and if you haven't already joined rahu.org.au, had to do a quick quick one on that. But no, it's been amazing to be able to chat with you all. And thanks so much to Dave and Libby for putting on such an incredible event. Massive round of applause.
You're tuned to 3CR, 855 AM, and we just heard from Lucy McMahon, Spike Chapalone, Kelly Whitworth, Jasmine Barzani, and Irene Salidas Noyce in conversation at the final panel session of the Forum for Dwelling Justice, which took place at the Capitol Theatre in Melbourne on the 26th of August. The final session looked at the power of documenting the movement for dwelling justice and peer-led activism. The Dwelling Justice Forum was organised by RMIT's Centre for Urban Research and supported by the International Journal of Housing Policy, the Renters and Housing Union and 3CR. To listen back and share this program and the previous episodes, you can find the podcast at 3cr.org dot au forward slash acting up and all the links for the items in today's show will be on the podcast notes you've been listening to a 3cr podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3cr in melbourne australia for more information go to all the w's dot 3cr dot org dot au